This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is the World in Time. Lead support for the World in Time podcast has been provided by Lizette Prince through the EJMP Fund for Philanthropy. Speaking today to Michael Kazin, historian, editor, author of a new book, War Against War, The Fight for Peace, 1914-1918. Michael, this book was for me a uh, joy to read because it's, I think you tell an, an, an important story and one that too many of our fellow citizens don't know. Why do you refer to the World War I as America's forgotten war? Well, thanks for that, those kind words, Lewis. Most Americans, I think, don't understand how World War I began, aren't quite sure why the United States uh, took part in it, not quite sure what the U.S. got out of it. So it's forgotten, I think, because, uh, you know, we have a few monuments around the country uh, to the war, but several in New York City, for example. But but it's uh, it doesn't have the, the resonance uh, in American historical memory that Civil War does, that World War II has, uh, uh, even the Vietnam War has. And uh, uh, there's no monument on the mall to those who fought, who fought and died in the war. So it's... Uh, Forgotten this sense, and I, whenever I ask my students at Georgetown, where I teach, uh, why did World War One begin? Uh, very few uh, can give me an explanation. When I ask them why the United States entered the war, very few can give me an explanation. When I ask them why uh, we celebrate Veterans Day, uh, excuse me, Ar- Veterans Day on November 11th, uh, very few know. And I say, oh, it used to be called Armistice Day. Uh, what war was that the armistice uh, to? And they, a couple, a couple people spark up at that point and say, oh, hmm, something to do with World War One. Yeah, it, in part, I think it's because, if I read the story correctly, Woodrow Wilson dragged the United States into the war under false pretenses because at the, when the war opens in Europe in 1914, the bulk of the American people uh, want to have nothing to do with it. Is that oh, correct? Oh, that's correct. Uh, in part, of course, because uh, the U.S. had never sent troops over to Europe to fight in in a European war. And it seemed as if uh, these uh, European empires were just uh, fighting each other yet again, as they'd done uh, for centuries before. And and of course, that was that was certainly true. So um, and uh, there was a peace march led by women uh, in late August 1914 down Fifth Avenue in New York. And the peace march included women from different countries, including uh, people from uh, women from countries who were fighting each other at the time. Uh, and Wilson basically blessed the march. He didn't take part in it, but he said he thought it was a good thing. That began to change with the um, torpedoing of, the, of Lusitania in May 1915 by a German U-boat, uh, this uh, most famous uh, uh, passenger ship in the world at the time, a British uh, ship, uh, Lusitania, which had uh, 120-something Americans on board who were killed. Uh, and and this began to change American attitudes, I think, towards seeing the Germans as the, um, the, the more evil empire, uh, if you will. But the the peace movement in the United States is very strong, and 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 as you portray it, as you say, the Women's March is August 1914, the same month that the guns begin to salute one another in in the Western uh, on the Western Front, and these are people of all kinds. I mean, you 
talk about the American objectors. I mean, you divide them into four parts. They're, they, who, who are they? Yeah, well, it was really a very broad coalition. I call it a coalition rather than a movement because it included a lot of people in Congress uh, as well as outside Congress. I see it having four parts. Uh, one, there were Southern Democrats uh, who were, of course, uh, white supremacists, racists at the time, but they also were opposed to a large militarized state, which they thought was uh, uh, was going to override states' rights and perhaps uh, – put guns in the hands of, uh, of black people uh, in the South. And they also were, um, in many ways, people who had thought that the Civil War uh, had been a bloody enough war. They didn't want to take part in another one. There were quite a few Republican progressives from the Midwest, led by Robert La Follette, uh, this uh, very eloquent uh, senator from Wisconsin, who believed that the kinds of progress that America was making in the progressive era on labor rights, uh, on help for the poor, on women's rights, uh, also was going to be jeopardized by uh, the U.S. going to war. And there were people on the left uh, at the time, uh, pacifists and feminists. Uh, Crystal Eastman was a, a really a, a Jill of all trades, if you will, in terms of the reform movement. She was involved in women's suffrage. She was involved in, uh, as a lawyer, in investigating uh, the industrial accident toll in America, writing a, a pioneering work on that. She was also the head of the American Union Against Militarism, a new organization that was founded, including uh, a lot of social workers, uh, as well as uh, radical feminists. And last but not least, there were the, the Socialist Party. Leading figure in that Socialist Party, Morris Hilquit, an immigrant from Latvia, spoke many languages. He was very close to a lot of uh, his brother and sister socialists in Europe. And of course, socialists were opposed to the war because they were internationalists, uh, even though uh, their brothers uh, in Europe, and many of them, especially in the German Social Democratic Party, uh, had agreed to go along with their nation in fighting the war. So I think it's fair to say you had a broad coalition of Americans who disagreed about a lot of things, but agreed that this war was already a disaster for people in Europe. Uh, hundreds of thousands, uh, by 1915, millions had died already uh, in Europe and uh, in the Middle East. And they believed there was no reason morally or in terms of American self-interest to fight the war. You, you quote earlier in your book, Max Eastman, who's the brother of Crystal Eastman, you will tell me, I mean, he was a magazine editor and a man of the left, but he, he says it is no longer questionable that modern war and the joy of existence are incompatible. War makes it impossible to live. It makes it impossible even to die for a noble purpose. <laughs> I'm reading that uh, many, many years later, and I see that as as you know, accurate and uh, absolutely true. And, and, and this is genuine anti-war sentiment on, on uh, moral and practical grounds. This is not isolationism. No, in fact, uh, one of the misconceptions, I think, about the anti-war movement, anti-war feeling in America is that it was just among Americans who wanted nothing to do with, with Europe and wanted to be as far away from Europe as possible. Well, a couple things wrong with that. First of all, um, this was a, a time when there were more uh, immigrants from Europe uh, and their children than any other time in American history. Uh, close to a third of the population were immigrants from Europe and their and their children. And uh, they were not isolationists. They were very close to what was going on in Europe. And for that reason, many of them didn't want the United States to be part of, uh, of those killing fields. Uh, in their in their home countries. Also, the people that I just mentioned, the uh, the activists in the anti-war coalition, had a, a a grand vision of how the world should work. Uh, they wanted a more cooperative, uh, more harmonious 
relationship between nations. Uh, they believed that war was obsolete because it was such a destructive war, uh, should be obsolete anyway. And and they really had this grand, perhaps naive, but uh, nevertheless, uh, you could argue realistic vision about the way uh, nations could get together if they found ways to mediate their disputes before they uh, started killing one another. And so I think that's that's important. It's important to realize, too, that World War I was a very different war than anyone had faced before. This was a war on a grand scale. It was obviously the First World War. You had airplanes, you had machine guns, you had dreadnoughts, you had um, artillery that could reach many miles. Uh, so this was a war very different from any war that humanity had fought before. You also have prominent capitalists. I mean, talk about Andrew Carnegie, who was a, a strong peace advocate. And so was Henry Ford. What did Henry Ford do in, in, in 1915? Well, Henry Ford uh, said at one point uh, he was a, a blunt talker. Uh, he said uh, the word murderer should be, uh, should be affixed to the uniform of every soldier. And in 1915, he decided to take it on himself as one of the most famous uh, and richest men in the world to charter a ship um, full of, of, of peace activists and journalists, of course, uh, to go over to Europe and to try to get other neutral nations to force uh, the belligerent nations to some kind of peace uh, treaty. And he promised uh, rather grandiosely uh, in early December 1915 that we would get the boys home by Christmas, which was uh, a little soon. But uh, a lot of journalists made fun of him, of course. Uh, this seemed to be very quixotic. Uh, there was a cartoon I republished in my book showing a, a huge uh, snowball uh, on the ship that Ford chartered uh, going into hell. Uh, but uh, clearly, a lot of other Americans thought, well, Maybe it won't work, but at least someone's trying something. And so Ford was something of a pacifist then. Andrew Carnegie, before the war started in 1910, had spent uh, $10 million of his money, which was a tremendous amount of money, uh, equivalent to maybe $200 million or $300 million today, to fund the Carnegie Endowment for Peace, which still exists, uh, with its headquarters in Washington. And he was very much uh, a figure who believed that, that war, again, was outmoded. And when war did start in Europe in 1914, he, he was never the same. He declined very, very quickly. He was, he was so, so depressed about the fact that something he had feared uh, throughout his lifetime had actually taken place, a, a war between nations uh, on a grand scale. All right. Well, early in the war then, in, in 19, starting in 1914, and, and holding up even after the sinking of the Lusitania in 1915, but there's still, uh, there are marches, there are protests, there are speeches in Congress by a, a few of the people you mentioned. But the anti-war, what you call coalition, uh, is overcome as we get closer to 1917. And how does that happen? And, and what steps? Wilson is pretending that he's an American, that America is neutral, but it isn't. America is support. Explain why. Yeah, the big, the big problem for America staying neutral was that American companies, uh, not surprisingly, uh, who were making munitions, wanted to sell munitions to uh, the belligerents. Uh, the British made that made it possible to to get uh, munitions of any any manufactured goods really into Germany because they they put mines uh, all over the the North Sea, which is the only seagoing route into into Germany. So American companies um, sold 
uh, ammunition and guns and machine guns and uh, um, various and uniforms and bullets and everything else to the British and the French, uh, because the British had the, the Royal Navy, which was by far the superior naval force uh, in the world. So the problem, of course, was the Germans felt well, they had to do something to counter uh, the British strength on, on the Atlantic. So they came up uh, with this uh, uh, submarine, which had been invented before, but uh, the Germans really um, had the most advanced submarines at the time. And they tried to sort of equalize the the odds in that way. But in fact, it was completely legal at the time for neutral nations like the United States to, to ship munitions to uh, powers at war. And that's what uh, the United States did. Probably would have uh, some companies would have been happy to ship them to the Germans too, but the British made that impossible. So, you had a one-sided battle in that sense on on the Atlantic, and uh, not surprisingly, the British did torpedo uh, some uh, neutral ships and some uh, passenger ships like Lusitania, which in fact were carrying munitions, over four million rounds of ammunition, but that wasn't admitted at the time by the British. Also, uh, the U.S. economy was in a recession in 1913 and early 1914, and. And this trade with the allies, uh, with the British and the French especially, really helped to bring America out of that recession. And also, uh, American investment houses like J.P. Morgan and Company uh, were getting, um, were, became the, the commission agents for the, for the British. Uh, 1% of everything the British bought in the United States through J.P. Morgan went to J.P. Morgan. So uh, war is very good business for uh, industrial corporations and for American investment houses. So as the war progresses, the money interests, the New York banks and, and uh, ally themselves with the Wilson administration's effort to overcome the objection to the war and to convince the American people that it was for a noble purpose, that it was a war to that he was going to undertake the war to save mankind or to an end to all wars, I mean, of, to try to give it a noble yes. face. Yes, yes. And I think he believed that. I mean, I think uh, you asked before uh, why the peace movement lost. There's there's various uh, uh, reasons, I think. I think it's, it's big, his big fight in 1916 was to try to stop the army from being uh, increased in size. The American army was pretty small at the beginning of the war. And uh, Teddy Roosevelt and Henry Cabot Lodge, his his, uh, his good friend who was uh, uh, the main Republican, the, the leading Republican on the Foreign Relations Committee of the Senate, um, they wanted an army uh, as large, if not larger, than the armies of the belligerent powers in Europe. But uh, the Peace Coalition tried to stop that. They tried to defeat bills to enlarge the army. They had some success doing that, actually. But what turned the tide really was um, that the Germans resumed unrestricted U-boat warfare, which they had, which they had, at least temporarily uh, stopped uh, in response to Wilson's uh, protests. But clearly, as you said before, uh, new Wilson was never really neutral. Economically, the United States was in effect in the war as part of the Allied powers, and Wilson, I think, you know, sincerely believed that. 
he was a sort of messianic figure. He believed that the United States was the exceptional nation. He believed that if America goes to war, America goes to war to uh, help mankind, as you mentioned, to uh, help make the world safe for democracy, as he said in his war message in April 1917. And so he really believed, I believe, he believed his own rhetoric. He really believed that if the United States get into the war, uh, the peace that would result from this would not be a punitive peace. It would be a peace which uh, would bring about if not universal peace, very soon at least would create a federated uh, world government in the League of Nations. There would be uh, a world court. There would be a possibility of people actually being able to avoid future wars. And of course, this was a, a dangerous uh, misconception. Finally, Wilson brings the war missions to Congress in April of 1917. And then shortly after that, Congress passes the Espionage Act, and talk now about 1917 through the end of the war in 1918 about the repression, very severe repression of dissenting opinion in the United States. Uh, give me some example of it. Wilson was fierce in his punishment of people who didn't agree with him. Oh, yes. Uh, and I think, uh, in, a, in a strange way, that was quite rational, because anti-war feeling, I think, remained quite strong, uh, even after the U.S. entered the war. Clearly, uh, a majority of Americans did support the war at this point, as they, they always do at the beginning of any American war. But Clearly, there are a lot of people who were not happy about the war, who would have liked there to be a referendum held before the U.S. went to war, which was the last sort of tactical demand of the uh, anti-war coalition before the U.S. actually declares war. And so the Espionage Act, which made it basically legal to uh, do anything to obstruct uh, the army or to obstruct the draft, but was used against anybody who's who just spoke out against the draft, who spoke out against the war, like Eugene Debs, the uh, the socialist leader who'd run for president uh, four times on the Socialist Party ticket. He was put in jail for giving a rather kind of boilerplate socialist speech about how uh, uh, wars don't help the working class, uh, which he gave at a picnic, a Socialist Party picnic in Canton, Ohio in 1918. He was given a 10-year jail sentence just for giving that speech. And uh, there are many other examples, even private conversations uh, among German-Americans, for example, saying, uh, gee, they kind of like the idea that uh, the Germans won this battle or that battle. Uh, some of them served um, several years in jail because uh, a, a person who wasn't really their friend was heard or overheard it and reported it to the authorities. So this was the most repressive period in American history in terms of federal power, uh, clamping down on people for just speaking their minds, for refusing to change their minds uh, is probably the best way to put it. And, and I think, again, we think about this as sort of Wilson was mad at people who didn't go along with him, and certainly he was. But it's also, I think, fair to say that politically he felt he had to do this because uh, otherwise it might have been difficult for the United States to actually muster so many troops and send those troops over to, uh, to France. Oh, and, but it, and it also comes with the, uh, the invention of the German as, as a monster. I mean, the... Um just to be German or German-American was to be a, somehow tainted with the mark of the beast. I mean, <laughs> and, and, you know, people could get arrested for playing Beethoven. Yeah, and, um, uh, you know, the, 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 the German-American community was probably the largest and best organized community of any immigrant community in America at the time. In fact, uh, 
in even places like Texas, you could actually go to public school in German because <laughs> um, there's so many Germans in, in different communities uh, in some parts of the country. But there was a complete turnaround uh, once the U.S. goes into war in Nebraska, which had a lot of a lot of German Americans in it, made it made it uh, against the law to actually teach German in public schools in Nebraska. And also, people are being thrown into jail for expressing objections to the war, and and the Wilson administration shuts down a number of publications. Talk about about the suppression of the press. Yes, anti-war newspapers were uh, almost all shut down. That they weren't banned from actually being published because that would have been a clear violation of the First Amendment, but they were uh, banned from uh, using the mails which uh, uh, legal authorities said they could do. And, of course, if you couldn't, uh, if, you could, if you only could, could distribute your newspaper on the streets of, uh, of, of one city, you weren't going to have a very large circulation. And, and the Masses, which was the most popular left-wing magazine of the day, published in Greenwich Village, full of uh, inventive art and, uh, and humor, as well as very serious political articles, edited by Max Eastman, Crystal Eastman's brother, was brought up under on, on the, on the, on the, 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 the Espionage Act uh, and was basically driven out of circulation uh, by, by this law. And uh, so, in effect, the socialist press, which had been very lively um, in America up until 1917, was driven out of business. Uh, and as I said before, uh, anybody who actually put out a leaflet opposing the draft uh, could be brought up on charges as well. So. Now, of course, enforcement was difficult because there are so many people who are doing this kind of thing. So you could get away with with uh, uh, subtle digs at the military if nobody reported you. But clearly it was very dangerous. In fact, Robert LaFollette uh, continued to speak out against the war, at least uh, one very high profile speech he gave in Minneapolis in 1917. And, and the Senate tried to expel him. Uh, for a while. And he almost only got away from it because he was out of the Senate for a while, uh, uh, taking care of his sick son. And there was sympathy for him on the part of, of, of other senators. Otherwise, he would have been expelled from the Senate. And there were many people deported. Yes, not during the war, but that was after the war. Uh, yeah. under, after the Palmer raids, which cracked down on radical uh, organizations. Uh, Emma Goldman, for example, uh, the leading anarchist in America, exponent of uh, feminism, of, uh, of free love, as it was called at the time, uh, was jailed for opposing the draft during during uh, World War One, and then she was let out of jail only, only to be deported to Russia, uh, which she had left uh, many years before because she'd never actually become an American citizen. Of course, then the, the uh, Wilson failed in Europe at the Treaty of Versailles did not impose or, or bring about the kind of uh, tolerant peace that uh, Wilson had hoped for. So that his objective failed there, and then the the League of Nations, which was his other fond hope for the future of mankind, was voted down by the United States Congress. So he his his objectives fail. Yeah, completely. And 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 in campaigning for the peace treaty in the summer of 1919, he has a stroke, and uh, um, and after that. Uh, he's still quite conscious, but he refuses to compromise in any way on the peace treaty. And and so uh, uh, this, the Senate, which Republicans had taken over in the midterm election of 1918, uh, votes against the peace treaty. It, didn't, it gets a majority, actually, in the Senate, but doesn't get the two-thirds majority needed. According to the Constitution, you need a two-thirds majority to ratify a treaty. Uh, 
And so, uh, and then the 20s is the Republican era, um, and Republicans win a landslide in 1920, and so the League of Nations, at least for American membership, is, uh, is dead. You conclude with the thought that the uh, World War I and the peace movement in World War I, the consequences of America's intervention into World War I is a moment when people and their government might have avoided a decision that fundamentally changed their society. And how did... Uh, I, I am quoting there Michael Kaysen, and, and how did how did the uh, how was our society fundamentally changed? Well, I think I mean, we talk about Wilsonian foreign policy still, Wilsonian democracy, even even though <laughs> obviously that's something of an oxymoron. I think what went on: the United States became a world power in a way it had not been before. The U.S. of course had thrown its weight around the world before that. Uh, most infamously in the Philippines uh, and in Cuba uh, in the War of 1898 uh, and afterwards, but but the U.S. had never was still a minor power with a with a with a, with a very small army, uh, as I mentioned before. But after World War One, the U.S. is one of the world powers. Uh, the, the military uh, is is um, dwindles in size uh, to a degree in 1920s and 30s, but. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt, of course, comes president in 33, was a Wilsonian. He was assistant secretary of the Navy in, during World War One, and, and he very much wants the United States to uh, be a, a, a world power, military power. And of course, World War Two, from World War Two onward, we have been, uh, if not the one of the uh, most powerful nations of the world militarily with a national security apparatus, which really begins in, in World War One. Uh, the FBI, for example, uh, was, which was a pretty unimportant Bureau of Investigation in the Justice Department before uh, World War One, uh, becomes a more important group during the war and then after the war, Jagger Hoover. Uh, takes over in 1924. He was very involved in the Palmer raids uh, in 1919 as well. And of course, he turns it into a uh, investigatory behemoth uh, and turns it against not just gangsters, but also uh, radicals uh, from the 20s onward. Also, you have a propaganda agency of the federal government, which begins in World War I. Uh, it was called the Committee on Public Information, which really was selling the war to the American people and also was selling the American uh, effort in the war to people around the world in many languages. That uh, the CPI is is done away with after the war is over. But then the Office of War Information takes over in World War II, and since then we of course had uh, a steady diet of, of propaganda about all the good things the United States is doing in the world. Also, uh, the the idea that you can have a draft that had been unpopular in the Civil War, but you have a draft in World War One which covered far more people uh, than the Civil War draft actually had, and Again, that falls by the wayside for a while, but then it comes roaring back in 1940. So World War One becomes a precedent for a lot of what uh, you have from in World War Two and ever since. It's what we have today. Exactly, exactly. And also the idea that the United States should be uh, a, a military power and should have bases around the world, should have a say in what goes on uh, in almost every country in the world. That, I think, begins with Wilson. And Wilson, I think, is is very altruistic about that, uh, uh, and presidents after him have often been altruistic about it as well. But of course, uh, if you're an altruist with uh, the biggest military in the world, uh, it's hard to really uh, see yourself as a moral force in the world, because you end up using the force of arms to uh, achieve what you cannot achieve uh, uh, through more peaceful means. And so I think in that sense, World War One is a 
a precedent for what the United States has done through most of the last uh, the last century in the world, and also at home. Uh, the idea that we have a permanent military establishment. Nobody would have imagined uh, that before World War I. And uh, so World War I, again, uh, the first time a majority of Americans were mobilized uh, for the same cause. Uh, and, uh, and there were a lot of opposition to that as well. Uh, one of the things that I, one of the, my favorite quotes from the debate about the war was a, a, a senator from Missouri named William Stone who was the chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, a Democrat, who was one of the six senators to actually vote against going to war, a war which the president of his own party, Woodrow Wilson, wanted him to vote for. Stone said in this debate, he said, if we go into this war, we will never again have the same old American republic. And you know, he was conservative when he said that. But in some ways, uh, I think that phrase resonates, that that uh, the idea of, of a peaceful, progressive American republic uh, not... Uh, devoted to uh, the making uh, and financing of war. Uh, this is something, uh, a dream perhaps, which uh, uh, perhaps died uh, with the U.S. going to World War I. It's still alive in the minds of a lot of Americans, certainly. But uh, uh, we haven't, it hasn't been a, a dream that's been alive for most people in, in the country ever since that point. No, I mean, and, and the, uh, you know, we, we now have a military establishment with something like 6,000 bases in the U.S., 1,131 countries abroad, an enormous uh, budget. And we have the Bush Doctrine that formed by the first w Bush, H.W., in the early 90s, defense, defense strategy for the 1990s, uh, which was to uh, rule and save the world. This is something the anti-war coalition, people in the anti-war coalition said. They said, if you prepare for war, you have a large military, you're going to end up using it. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, and I think that's exactly what happened in Europe, of course, before World War One, as you know. Uh, uh, the Russians and the British and the French and the Germans, the Austro-Hungarians and, and the Ottoman Empire, they all felt uh, we have to prepare for war because uh, we're going to be attacked if, we, if we're not ready. Uh, we have to be ready. And, of course, what happened was they annihilated one another. Last question, Michael. Okay, so... But we don't have what we we have the, with the Wilsonian self-righteous military empire, but we don't seem to have at the moment or, or, or in the last 30 odd years, as I can remember, a, a, a broad-based peace coalition. I mean, we have various forms of identity politics and various objections to the Washington consensus along sexual, feminist, uh, working class, and so on, but but no uh, unified coalition for peace. No, and I think, uh, I mean, for those who would like to have one, which I certainly would uh, like there to be one, I think one of the lessons from the history of anti-war movements, I talk about this in the book, is that, you know, anti-war movements, peace movements have to sort of reinvent themselves with every war. It's not like the black movement, like the feminist movement, like uh, the labor movement, where it's sort of ongoing and uh, uh, it's it's in good times and bad, you can see there are activists. There's a few pacifists, of course, in America today, <laughs> uh, some voices, of course, but but um, unless there's a war uh, which is raging, which Americans are opposed to, uh, now of course uh, there was a big movement against going to you know, Iraq, that disastrous invasion of Iraq in 2003. 
but then it kind of dissipated. Uh, and I think part of the problem right now, too, is that the enemy has been identified as jihadists, um, as people who, you know, want to want to kill anybody who's not uh, a, a radical uh uh, exponent of, of Islam, and uh, of course, some of the people, like as an ISIS, uh, uh, that the United States is fighting, are certainly that's accurate, an accurate definition of them. And if you have a, an enemy like that, it's pretty difficult, I think, to get large numbers of Americans to say, well, we shouldn't, we shouldn't have, uh, we shouldn't be involved in in a war like that, uh, because everybody across the political spectrum, pretty much, um, at least in the in the both Major parties, including a you know a left-wing Democrat like Bernie Sanders, agrees we need a large enough military to defeat ISIS, and and so I think it's very difficult to imagine, as long as Americans are afraid of the enemy, and they have good reason, of course, to oppose a group like ISIS, uh, very difficult to imagine a a broad-based uh, movement opposed to uh, American militarism. Well, I was glad to read of one <laughs> in your very very fine book. I I, uh, I truly and. I learned a great deal. Well, thank war you. Against War by Michael Kazin. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today. Thanks for the conversation. I enjoyed it. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.